The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, stop working on your moon tan and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 422 with guest Doug Crawford, recorded live Monday, February 9th, 2009. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, NRTV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who minds his own business, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. Carl Franklin here. Richard Campbell here. And we're here for your listening pleasure for the next hour or so. Hey, Richard, what's happening, man? Ah, uh, dude, my house. Starting to get finished. Oh, that's always a good thing. It's been a long time. It's been more than a year. Yeah. I, I Actually, you know, I got housing issues going on, too. I'm moving a block. Right. From, uh, from a crappy apartment to a smaller but nicer apartment. Right. Yeah. And how's the move going there, bub? Oh, it's been easy. Oh, it's been very easy. That's good. Yeah. No, I I don't have a lot of stuff, so. You don't really have moving issues then. No, I pretty much live in the studio, you know. I Too much I know. <laughs> if there was a shower here, I'd never leave. <laughs> <laughs> much to the chagrin of the tenants. All right, let's get started with Better Know a Framework. All right, sir, what do you got? Staying on the WPF uh, bandwagon because, let's face it, that's where the new stuff is. And it's, uh, it's a big set of libraries, too. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about the namespaces first, and then I'm going to dig into the, to the, uh, to the details. But, okay. Uh, today, we're talking about system.windows.documents, and this is where fixed document and flow document live. Okay. And the XML paper specification XPF. And uh, I can't remember if I did something on XML paper before. Maybe we talked about it. But but anyway, fixed document and flow document are such. The flow document is just exactly the way you think. Uh, flow content with advanced document features like pagination and columns. The fixed document class 
is a, uh, a portable, high-fidelity, fixed-format document with read access for user text selection, keyboard navigation, and search. Cool. So, you know, this is analogous to, you know, something that moves and flows and stretches around and then something that's fixed. <laughs> so there you go. Fixed document, flow document. They're in system.windows.documents in WPF. Awesome. Know what level they're in? What you got, Richard? I've got a longer email about the Coding for Fun show. Oh, it was great. Hi, guys. I really got a kick out of your recent Coding for Fun show. I've never attended one of Carl's Coding for Fun talks, but I know exactly what he's talking about when you mix coding with a different hobby. You got it. My off-hours passion is amateur radio, and I've used station automation as a way to learn the latest in development techniques. RS-232 is still alive and well in ham radio, from controlling radios, antenna switches and rotators, and amplifiers, and even digital communications over the air. Wow, cool. I started out writing station automation programs around a logging database in Access. Ooh. Ugh. Yeah, well. Ooh. Mm. A spot would come over the air, my code would parse it, check the database, and figure out a station was on the air from a country I'd never talked with before, and would alert me. I can click the entry and have the antenna turned in the right direction and the radio turned to the right frequency, ready for me to take the mic or key. You know what's funny? Hmm. Just as a sideline. Yeah. The guy's obviously a ham radio guy, right? Right. And that's his hobby. Right. And he's dropped into ham radio lingo. Right. Now you know how regular mortals feel when we're talking about software. <laughs> I know, like, it's true. All the words are English. Right. But dude, what did you just say? What the hell did you just say? <laughs> But he goes on. Contesting is really big in Ham Radio 2. 24 or 48 hour frenzied periods where the goal is to contact as many stations as you can for the points. It is not unusual for the winner to have contacted 3,000 to 4,000 stations in a weekend. Wow. An automated station really helps in those wee hours of Sunday morning. CQ, CQ. <laughs> Later, I rewrote everything in VB6 and COM, interfaces that represented a radio or a rotator, etc. Then I rewrote it again in .NET. Now I'm finally ditching the access UI and going to WPF. Yeah. I'm also looking into controlling my station remotely over the web. Is that necessary? Oh, that's awesome. There are several commercial packages that do all this now, but there weren't any when I started in 1993, and besides, it's more fun to homebrew it. I totally agree. This is what we're talking about. This is what I'm talking about. It doesn't matter if it's been done before. If it's something you want to do just for the fun of it and to understand it, do it. Yeah. There's not always time to work the latest lessons into projects at work, but coding for fun is a great way to keep abreast of things while enjoying your other hobby at the same time. Absolutely. As always, keep up the great work, guys. Really enjoying the show. Take care. Brian Smithson from South Carolina. Brian, thanks for the great email. We've all got our hobbies, and ham radio is not one of mine. And if you've got questions, concerns, ideas for shows, stories to relate, we love to get them. Send us an email, rocks at franklins.net. Hey, you know, uh, our friends at Tom Bin have released a new bag. Well, really? it was a while ago, but check, you know, you ever, you know what's like going through airports? I do. With a laptop. And if you don't have a bag where that thing comes out easily, you, you know, you're in a world of hurt. So check this out. They have a bag called the check. Now, now first of all, Tom Bin, they don't really sponsor our show, but we just love their bags. 
Yes. And they often give us bags to give away as prizes. Right. So they have one called the Checkpoint Flyer briefcase, and it's the first airport security checkpoint-friendly bag designed specifically for Mac laptops. So it's available in custom sizes for MacBooks. The Checkpoint Flyer's laptop inserts are removable and interchangeable with other sizes. And when one buys a new laptop, they won't need to buy an entirely new Checkpoint Flyer, just a new insert. Yeah, the genius of the Checkpoint Flyer bag is that the laptop is actually in sort of a little pouch on its own that can be pulled away from the rest of the bag. So the TSA now allows us to not take our laptops out as long as there's nothing on either side of it. So with the Checktop Flyer, you're able to put your laptop essentially separately from the rest of the bag, although still connected, and then it'll go through the scanner. So it's a lot less painful to deal with the TSA in your laptop. Yep. And if you want to check out the Checkpoint Flyer online, go to shrinkster.com slash 14JL. That's 14 Juliet Lima. Okay, uh, let's introduce our guest. This is going to be a fun show. Douglas Crockford is a product of our public education system. And by the way, this bio is, was not written by me. Uh, it sounds like a self-written bio. A registered voter, he owns his own car. He has developed office automation systems. He did research in games and music at Atari. He was director of technology at Lucasfilm. He was director of new media at Paramount. He was the founder and CEO of Electric Communities and Communities.com. He was founder and CTO of State Software, where he discovered JSON, J-S-O-N. He is interested in Bliss Symbolics. Bliss Symbolics, is that how you say that? A graphical symbolic language. He is developing a secure programming language. He is now an architect at Yahoo and the world's foremost living authority on JavaScript. Welcome. <laughs> Does that mean you killed all the other authorities on JavaScript? Uh, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're all fine. Last I heard. Uh, the, as, soon as, you, as soon as you said that, the weird Al White and nerdy video came to mind, where he says he's fluent in JavaScript and Klingon. I don't know why. I don't know why. It is quite a quite a um, a life. That you've had an, here. an eclectic resume, mm-hmm. and and you're you're you love to talk, obviously. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm just waiting for a cadence or something here. So, is there anything like a question or? A topic? <laughs> so if you started out with Atari, or you didn't start out with Atari, but you got involved in Atari. You must have bumped into Nolan Bushnell that whole era, the early era of video games. I, I ran into him later. Um, when I was working at, at Lucasfilm, I had the use of Skywalker Ranch, and so I, I could invite people to, to come to the ranch, and he was someone who wanted an invitation. Uh, so I got to meet him then, um, took him around and showed him everything that George had built there. And about halfway through the tour, he turned to his assistant and said, I need to make a lot more money. <laughs> <laughs> so what is a director of technology? It's got to be... You're you're the guy. Uh, I mean, I can't. I have so many questions. I don't know where to start. Um, what 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 era was that when when he was working on Star Wars, or was it before that, or after it, or? Uh, it was after that. It was during the eighties. Okay. So I I wasn't looking at stuff specifically for filmmaking. I, although there were a lot of people at the company who were doing that, and a lot of really brilliant work in that area was done there. 
I was looking at, uh, at delivery systems, new forms of digital or interactive entertainment. Okay. And looking at it in the context of what we did and trying to decide if it was going to be fun enough. So delivery systems in terms of um, delivery to the theaters? Uh, no, uh, delivery to the home. Software. Oh, oh, okay. So you know, we're looking at uh, game systems and education systems and um, home media systems. Because in like the that. 80s, Lucasfilm was big into building game software. You don't hear much from them now. Uh, they're still doing it from what I've heard. Yeah. But yeah, I was... Uh, they're in the early phase of that. Okay. And, and of course, these days, I think about Steam from Valve as being a great game distribution engine. When you talk about game distribution, I'm not sure what you mean. Are you, are you talking about... Well, it wasn't games necessarily. It was, um, there was a, a lot of interest at that time in new forms of entertainment. Right. Um, and, you know, one of them turned out to be the Internet. But we'd done a lot of work in, in like, the first... Uh, large-scale online graphical community was developed at Lucasfilm. Tell, tell me about that. What was that all about? It was, it was uh, the idea of Chip Morningstar. It uh, ran on the Commodore 64 on the Quantum Link system. So this was really early stuff. But Chip invented avatars and created a context in which thousands of people could get online and play with each other. And this is all using modems. Obviously, yeah, I was using 300 baud modems. Was this Habitat? Yeah, it's called Habitat. Holy cow, that's a flash from the past. I remember Habitat. I had a 64. That's like that's like the mid 80s. Yeah, yeah. No, I I didn't have one, so I know nothing about it. So this was was this sort of analogous to like a CompuServe thing, like a central place with a lot of modems where people could dial in and and network with each other. Right. Wow. Well, and they, and they were trying to do, it was trying to do this sort of 3D look back when we had, you know, virtually no horsepower. It, it wasn't quite 3D, but it, it, you know, it was good looking for Commodore 64 stuff. Sure. And did you work at Atari before that or after? Uh, before that. I spent two years at the Sunnyvale Research Center. Okay. And so were you developing mostly for arcades at that time? Uh, no, I wasn't doing uh, product development. I was doing research. Research, but was Atari developing mostly games for, for for? Well, I guess they had their Atari TV boxes, right? Well, at, at that time, Atari had three lines of business. It had the arcade games, it had home computers, and it had the VCS, you know, home game console. Mm. So, what does research into games involve? Um, graphic, graphical stuff. Uh, yeah, so we did a lot of work in, in new graphics chips and, and architectures for doing that. We did a lot of work on, on sound chips and music synthesis. We did work on programming languages, did work on interactive music, um, quite a lot of stuff. So then you went on to um, new di uh, director of New Media at Paramount, and when was this then, in the late 80s? Uh, or early 90s, yeah, that didn't last very long. Paramount was going through a, a weird transition and then got bought by Viacom. So the research operation I was in didn't survive for very long. Tell us about um, Communities.com. Um, so it, it was initially Electric Communities, and 
we wanted to take the things that we had learned at Lucasfilm and some other projects that we'd done since then and uh, apply them to the world. So we came up with a um, a distributed programming language for writing secure distributed applications that could be used essentially to allow people to create their own habitats and to have um, enough security in the way that thing was put together so that those habitats could include marketplaces where real things would be be bought and sold. So it was a very um, advanced plan. And yeah. it, it anticipated a lot of stuff that, that um, ended up happening. Yeah, um, Second Life is what I'm thinking of. Yeah, yeah, we were, we were doing that stuff, but we were way ahead of him. And then that was our problem. We were just too early. And were you, I mean, you said selling real things. So is it more of the, you know, I've got stuff in my garage kind of sell or selling stuff? I mean, I think that's interesting about Second Life is they're, they've created their own economy. They're selling stuff in the game for people in the game. Right. We were going to do that, but we also wanted to move real stuff as well. Early in the internet, and it was probably 97 or 96, there was a Second Life type of thing and using a VRML with avatars, and I know you know what I'm talking about, where you, where you could actually walk up to people and speak with a microphone and hear them. Yeah, you may be thinking of OnLive. Maybe. Uh, yeah, OnLive was a company uh, that I bought, actually. Our, our company acquired that company. Um, and they had um, a, a 3D system, and they had a uh, voice technology so that everybody could stay in voice contact. What was the name of the the site? Because OnLive doesn't ring a bell. Uh, OnLive was the name of the site. It was OnLive.com. Okay. Maybe I'm just forgetting. But I remember Robert Scoble showed it to me. He was big into this thing, whatever it was. And, you, and it was interesting because you'd be in a room and you could just navigate up to somebody and you would hear everybody in the room. It would, it would put all the voices together, uh, all the voice streams together in real time, which... I know how hard it is to do that, and you know it takes a lot of processing power. But but it was pretty. Well, cool. Online was really clever in the way that it it reduced a lot of that work. What it would do is it would ten, send the two loudest streams to you, and you would mix them locally, um, so the server didn't have to do all that audio processing. Oh, good, very good. <laughs> and and generally for conversations, two channels is enough. Sure. Yeah, is it two of the same channels? Like, they, is that actually a stereo effect of the voice, or is that two different voices? Well, every voice is a channel, and then locally you could do 3D imaging with it. Right. Interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. Um, I, I haven't heard that um, feature being used in Second Life. Does Second Life do audio as well? I don't know. Yeah, I don't think so. I don't know. Yeah, they have some audio, but it's a it's a different thing. Yeah. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our very good friends at Telerik. Hey, don't you sometimes wish the Internet was more like television? Instead of looking for some info scattered all over the place, you pick up the remote control, sit back, and enjoy browsing through hundreds of channels. Well, your dreams might be coming true with an exciting new resource brought to you by Telerik, the Telerik TV video portal. Telerik TV is a gateway to all Telerik video resources, Webinars, product videos, how-tos, training materials, and much more. The videos are organized in a way that makes it easy to find answers to your problems or discover new tips and tricks as you browse various video channels. What's more, Telerik TV was built using Telerik's own RAD controls for ASP.NET, AJAX, and Open Access ORM 
making it a great showcase of those products. So go on, pick up the remote and start watching Telerik TV today at tv.telerik.com. Should we jump to Jason? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of, I mean, because this is a big deal. That's Jason big is deal. Uh, has definitely got some traction these days. It's sort of a much lighter weight protocol than a lot of others for doing data interchange. Uh, can you tell us the story? How did you get into this? Yeah, so um, in 2001, uh, Chip Morningstar and I started a company called State Software. Um, we had figured out that browsers were capable of doing a lot more than people had realized at that time. That capability has since been called Ajax and has become pretty popular, but it was uh, unknown stuff in 2001. And so uh, we started a company to develop uh, what you would now call an Ajax platform. So we had a, a server that was really, really good at, at handling sessions, and then we had a, an Ajax library that made it easy to do the stuff on the client side. And we needed some way of communicating information back and forth because we saw these applications as being a dialogue between a client and a browser, or a, a client in a browser and a server. Um, and we needed some language for these things to communicate in. And it, it occurred to me one day that... Um, JavaScript object literals is a natural way of doing that. And um, first off, it's a it's a really elegant notation, and um, it required no effort on our part to cause it to get parsed and, and evaluated on the client side. So it was like free. Um, so it was um, wonderful, and so I convinced Chip that it was the right way to go, and he saw that not only did it work on uh, the network end of the system, but he also used it for um, writing to the database and for doing inter-server communication. It was just a really useful way of expressing information. And it was so much faster and lighter than XML, which was what everybody else was doing at the time. And so we'd go to um, potential uh, customers and we'd explain to them how our system worked and how we'd do the communication and we describe how JSON worked and they said, well, we've never heard of that. And we said, well, that's because we made it up, but it's it's built into the language and, it, and it's really effective. And they'd go, oh, I'm sorry, we just made the decision to commit to XML, so sorry, we can't use your stuff. And that, um, we heard that over and over again. So one day I thought, okay, I'll just declare that it's a standard and then people can use it. <laughs> I thought that was an old Microsoft technique. I bought json.org and I wrote a web page which described it and it's simple enough that you could describe the whole thing on one page. In fact, you could print the json specification on a business card. You know, it's really really small. Um and part of the reason for making it small was I thought the less we have to agree on in order to interoperate, the more likely we're going to do it well. So um, I tried to make JSON as small and simple as possible. And so I put up the website and did nothing else. And eventually the world discovered it and adopted it. So, you know, I created a world standard but just by saying, how about it? And the world said, okay. Yeah, and, and boy, has do you have some really uh, um, enthusiastic supporters out there. The, the people love JSON. Well, yeah, because it, it's really so easy. I mean, the XML really forces you to go a long way out of your way in order to use it. And 
to compensate for that, um, that community has developed these um, awesome uh, stacks of tools. And when we started showing JSON to people, they'd ask, well, where are, where are all the tools that make this easy? And you know, it was difficult to explain to them that you don't need any tools to make this easy. It's just easy. But eventually, everybody figured it out, and, and now we've seen adoption all over the place. And uh, Bliss Symbolics, sim a graphical symbolic language. Tell us about this. Uh, there was a, um, an Austrian chemist who um, was captured by the Nazis um, early in World War II and managed to get released and ended up in Shanghai. Um, and while he was in Shanghai, he tried to learn Chinese and was frustrated by the complexity of the written language. So he thought that he would use his skills as a chemist to develop a new language in which you have things which represent ideas and actions and things um, as atomic symbols, which you could put together in interesting ways in order to produce more complicated symbols. And his plan was to come up with a language which was graphically simple enough that you could express it on a modified typewriter, but logical enough that anybody could learn to read it, regardless of, of what their native language is. So he spent um, uh, the rest of his life developing this language. Um, it finally got a trial um, at uh, a, children, a crippled children's hospital in Canada, where they used it to... Um, allowed children with cerebral palsy to communicate. These children um, uh, are unable to speak and, and have an extremely difficult time expressing themselves. But um, they were able to learn the bliss symbols and to point to them on bliss boards and were able to, for the first time in their lives, to communicate with their families. Um, so the thing that the Canadian research proved was it is easier to learn to use bliss symbols than it is to learn to read and write your own native language. So uh, bliss symbols are an amazing thing. I, I ran into them when I was at Electric Communities. I wanted, um, we were anticipating doing uh, global networking, so we needed some way of interacting with people across all of the languages. Um, and so I thought, well, maybe bliss symbols could be adopted as a uh, a networking language um, so that we could do stuff that everybody could read and, and participate with. I'm trying to imagine what uh, what these symbols look like. Is there a place online where we can sort of get a look at it? Uh, you can go to my website. Uh, go to crockford.com, and I've got some stuff which shows how it works. So, And these are literally symbols. They're not necessarily uh, uh, English letters. Uh, that's correct. Yeah, so he uses a small box to represent a thing. Um, and he uses an arrow to indicate direction, and you can put things together in ways which make sense. And it's kind of amazing the combinatorial of explosion of ideas that come out of that. You actually have these as fonts, it looks like, on your site. Very cool. Well, wow, this is interesting. You, you know, it's funny how few characters or words you need to be able to communicate. It doesn't take a lot. Did you study kanji or, um, uh, or Chinese? Uh, yes. 
I, I, I did, and, and the original Chinese written language was ideographic, um, similar to the way that bliss symbols are. Um, but over the course of hundreds of years, it basically turned into a phonetic language. Um, and it's the phonetic aspect of it which makes it really complicated. Also, they changed their um, their uh, technology in that it, it started off with pens and then um, went to brushes. And you can't do things like circles with a brush. So the uh, appearance of the symbols changed pretty significantly. And that also makes it very difficult to read. Yeah, I'm I'm looking at the symbols here, and and they are very, very easy, and very rudimentary. How how many symbols are there? Um, it's sort of like asking how many words are there. Nice. Um, so there is a there's real literally a symbol for just about every word in the dictionary. Is what you're saying? Right. The the number of atomic symbols is pretty small. Um, but then they can be built up and combined to make more sophisticated symbols. That set can be very large. And I'm I'm also looking at uh, Crockford.com. There is a whole bunch of interesting stuff here for anyone, and I encourage all our listeners to go check this out. Um, and we'll get into JavaScript in a minute, but um, one thing that caught my eye before the show was the Crockford keyboard. Mm-hmm. So this is a, a keyboard that you designed for, for people who don't know how to type or don't necessarily or, or- understand the QWERTY layout. Yeah, or don't want to type. Or don't want yeah. to type, yeah. Tell us about this. Um, I, I got the idea reading an IBM journal. Um, some researchers there looked at the possibility of taking a standard keyboard and rearranging the letters so that they're in alphabetical order. And they did a test on that and determined that um, for non-typists working on that alphabetic sequence keyboard, uh they weren't any more effective and maybe were slightly less effective. It occurred to me that they were studying the wrong thing um, because the QWERTY keyboard was designed for two-handed operation. So um, it's it's just the wrong shape for doing hunting and pecking. So it doesn't matter what the sequence of the keys are, it's non-optimal. And probably the reason why people did better on the QWERTY keyboard was even though they don't have a lot of training, they have had practice on that keyboard. Um, so I, I looked at, well, how can we radically change the shape of this thing in order to make hunting and pecking more effective? So what I did was I, I came up with a five-by-six matrix, um, and in the left column, I've got the vowels, A-E-I-O-U, and then the other letters go sequentially off of those. So the vowels are really easy to find, um, and they also index or partition the rest of the alphabet, making everything else easy to find. And because it's roughly square, it's real easy to get out with one or two fingers. Are these uh, diagrams that are on your website here, they look like they're for a mobile phone, like a Windows mobile phone or something? Uh, uh, yeah, that, that particular one was for a Palm Pilot. Um, because I, um, having to tap out letters is very similar to hunting and pecking. So I thought, sure. well, this should work very well in small screen tapping applications as well. Do you text? Are you a texter on your phone? Um, a little bit, not very much. I'd, I'd probably do it a lot more if I had a keyboard like that. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I think this, we still don't have a keyboard like this. Yeah, that's true. Well, most people learn that QWERTY 
you know, layout and, and that's, that's what they learn. Mm -hmm. That's it. Typically you're only going to learn one layout, right? Right. Yeah, and you, and you can't really retain more than one. If you try and get a second one, it messes you up for the first one. Exactly. So uh, that brings us to JavaScript, which is um, your your claim, the for world's foremost authority on JavaScript. Your book is called JavaScript, The Good Parts. And uh, I, I noticed, you know, you just uh, one of the reasons why I identify with you so much is your tongue-in-cheekiness is uh, so apparent and so great. So why is JavaScript so misunderstood? Um, there, are, there are a lot of reasons. I mean, one of them, one of is from its history, that it was intentionally mispositioned at the time it was introduced um, in order to not detract too much from Java. And the fact that they called it JavaScript when it really has nothing to do with Java, that was an intentional misrepresentation, which was motivated by trying to uh, make it easier for Netscape and Sun to get along. But that confused everybody else. Also, it's one of the rare languages where people will undertake to start writing programs in it without having to learn it. Um, there's no other language which is like that. Um, if you're writing in anything else, you'll take the trouble to figure out how the language works before you start trying to sell programs in it. For some reason, in JavaScript, people don't seem to think that's necessary. Um, and then the other thing is that there is a really good, uh, a brilliant programming language hidden inside of JavaScript. Um, but you have to peel away a lot of crap before you can discover that. And that, that's the premise of my book, that if you can work just using the good part of the language and completely ignore all the bad stuff, and there's a lot of bad stuff, you can be much more productive with it and much happier with it. Are we talking about the difference between the fundamentals and the DOM? Um, no, but that, that's a good point. The DOM is, is terrible. The DOM is the interface that the browser presents to JavaScript. And it's, yeah, the document object model, it's the browser's API, and it's really awful. Um, it was first developed at Netscape. Um, I think they probably modeled it after HyperCard. Um, and then uh, Microsoft did a lot of work, which actually improved it, but didn't go far enough. Um, so it, it's it's pretty awful. Um, but I don't talk about the DOM in my book. Um, I look specifically at the programming language itself. And even at the programming language level, there are a lot of features in the language which just don't work right. Um, they can be made to work right, but in my view, they're not worth the trouble. So it's best to strip it down, work with the cleanest subset. And my contention is you could be very productive in that and happy in that subset. So when you say you need to discover the, the hidden programming language, or are you talking about just the, the fundamentals of JavaScript? Well, also knowing to avoid the bad stuff. There are a lot of attractive nuisances in the language. Um, Such as? Like the with statement. There are a lot of clever guys out there trying to figure out how to do amazing things with the with statement. Um, but the thing is faulty. It um, impairs the performance of the language. It's best just to leave it out. So don't use it. Just, yeah, that, that statement they, is abused easily. 
yeah, it's more easily abused than used properly. Um, and while it is possible to use it correctly in some circumstances, there's nothing you can do with it that you can't do better without it. So <laughs> better just not to use it. Just to leave it off. Do you think sometimes people will try to use those language things just to be able to do it? Oh, absolutely. And and early in my career, I was doing that. I would go through the manuals and I'd figure out everything that the language I was using could do. And I would try to figure out how to do all of those things in my programs. And, you know, doing those things often interfered with the portability of my stuff so they wouldn't run on other processors. And sometimes those features just weren't thought through all that well. And I was actually um, making my programs weaker uh, while I was showing off. So, you know, eventually I figured out that that wasn't a smart thing to do, that a smarter thing to do would be to try to find the smallest bit of the language which is most likely to work reliably and most likely to be portable. I think that's a trap that we as developers have always fallen into, is something that looks like a challenge, you know, that, that would be very satisfactory to be able to nail. And yet it might be the most arcane, crazy, cryptic kind of tool or language or whatever it is that you're trying to do, um, just to be able to say that I can do it, and then you've got bragging rights, right? I mean, that is a trap that we've fallen into over and over again. Oh, I absolutely. I it, yeah, it's a really easy thing to fall into. And part of becoming a professional in, in this stuff is is not doing that. Yeah, I'm just trying to imagine I, I, something about professional JavaScript program. It almost feels like an oxymoron. So many people are so frustrated with JavaScript. Uh, you're quite right. Um, although, I, I think that is changing. Um, JavaScript uh, has somehow become one of the most important languages in the world, um, mainly as a result of being the language of the browser. And because the browser is important, JavaScript's important. And JavaScript got a second chance when the Ajax revolution happened. Right. So it was a language that everyone had rejected, but when Ajax was rediscovered, it was like, well, let's take a second look at it. And the, Well, the resulting application was so compelling that it overcame the problems with the language. Uh, right. And it also turned out that those applications were feasible because of the goodness that was in the language. Um, had JavaScript really been as bad as we all thought it was, Ajax couldn't have happened. I guess that makes sense. And, uh, people really wrestle with the performance of JavaScript as well. As soon as you start writing anything substantial in it, it, it becomes an issue of, uh, of behavior. Right. But I, I think there are big performance problems in the DOM. Right. And um, the DOM so overwhelms the, the profile in browser applications that JavaScript is almost insignificant. Yeah, you're right. We, I, I, and I'm guilty of that just now. I'm blaming JavaScript for problems in the DOM. Yeah, so there's been a lot of pressure on the browser makers, and it's good that they're doing this. They're, they're finally making uh, the JavaScript processors faster. But what I think we're going to discover is, for most applications, it doesn't make any difference. This is really about fixing the DOM. Yeah, we're not compute-bound in JavaScript. We are DOM-limited. True. And the, the other problem that I think we had with JavaScript was that when people discovered it and they discovered this is a way to do you know, rich internet applications in the browser, the amount of JavaScript that was required to 
to get things up and running. If you're talking about like a classic kind of data entry screen with validation and all that stuff, back in the day, you know, with internet connections being what they were and browsers being what they were and computer processing power being what they were, it could take five minutes to load an application. So I think that that was another reason people sort of were JavaScript. Ugh. Now, of course, we don't have those issues. We have more tools uh, on the client side. We have Ajax so that we don't have to load everything on the client. And we've got uh, faster computers and faster pipes. You know, it's funny. I wonder where VBScript went. It, I, You know, VBScript, I remember back in those days that people were like, well, I'd really like to write my stuff in client side in VBScript, but Netscape doesn't support it, so that's out. And that that was basically the, the reason. Well, I'm, you know, what do you, what do you think of VBScript as a language relative to JavaScript? Um, I think it's unnecessary. Yeah. Um, it it removes from, uh, relative to JavaScript JavaScript's best features. Um, the things that function that JavaScript does with functions are amazing, and that's really really good stuff. And VBScript didn't get all of that. Um, I, it, it doesn't appear that. Even Microsoft has any interest in VBScript anymore, so that that appears. Well, be... it became irrelevant at that point. I think when people realized they couldn't use it, and and I'm wondering what the JavaScript of the day was like. I mean, what, were those was that capability in the language back even back then? Uh, JavaScript got good in 1.2. Um, prior to that, the uh, language was pretty limited, um, but a lot of the programming. Uh, community didn't pay any attention to the evolution of the language. So 1.0, 1.1, crap, everyone... I, I mean, I looked at that stuff and I said, this is ridiculous. This is not an interesting language. Um, a few years later, I was forced to take another look. at. Um, and by then, they'd gotten to 1.2, and at that point, it was a really interesting language. They hadn't changed a lot, but there were a small number of things went in which just uh, brought it all together. Now, what browser was 1.2? Is that like IE3, Netscape 2? I think it was Netscape 4 and IE5.5. Okay. Yeah, so actually pretty late in the game. Yeah. But that's really the point where we got the uh, the HTTP, uh, the ability to do AJAX, essentially, the ability to communicate back to the web server without rebuilding the whole page. Well, it turned out we always had it. Really? Uh, yeah. Well, we've been uh, using doing it with different technologies. Yeah, there were different techniques. For example, you could have um, a frame set in which you had uh, frames allocated for doing communication and then do yeah. cross-frame communication. Hidden between. eye frames, for yeah. example. Yeah, so those tricks have always worked. It, it got better with the XHR, except you lost the ability to talk to other domains. Eventually, we'll get that stuff fixed. Sorry, lost ability to talk to other domains? Uh, yeah, so if, if you... Um, uh, XHR can only talk to the originating domain. Right. Is that for uh, security yeah. reasons? Uh, it's mainly to uh, protect incompetent system administrators. <laughs> okay. Okay, there it is. So there are a lot of things that happen in the name of security. That that one isn't really about security. It's about incompetence. <laughs> I, was, I was thinking about cross-site scripting. Well... All XHR can do is get data. Um, so that that's not really a security concern. Okay. And yeah. 
what, what, what might be a concern is the ability to write data so that if you can get some information from the application or from the user, you could then send it to a malicious website. You are always able to do that without restriction. Yeah, true. Because you can send a URL to any site, and that URL can contain any data you want a to send. A JS file is data. Yeah, so the only thing that uh, the XHR cross-site restriction prevents is the ability to read data from another site. Um, and that turns out not to be a good thing to restrict. There are good reasons to be able to get that data. There might be good reasons to prevent the writing of data, but that's never been prohibited. Hey, I just want to give a shout-out real quick to our friends at Data Dynamics who uh, make ActiveReports.net, among other really awesome things. ActiveReports.net is great because uh, it allows you to just build your reports with an easy editor, embed them right in your application, provide PDF and HTML output, give your end users a report editor, royalty-free, of course, a great access report upsizing wizard, and all this for a price that isn't going to break the bank. ActorReports.net from Data Dynamics. Go check it out now at datadynamics.com. You talk about um, memory leaks, particularly with the DOM. You're not really talking about the the language itself having problems with memory leaks, but uh, the DOM, the way it works, sets you up so that you could have leaks. Well, in particular on IE, um, they didn't work through the implications of the page being dependent or having references to JavaScript and JavaScript having references back. So cyclical um, structures are really easy to build, um, and their garbage collector wouldn't fix them or, or wouldn't reclaim them, and so memory would leak. The other browsers didn't make that mistake. And early on, I can understand why Microsoft thought they didn't need to fix it, because at the time that... Um, IE5 and 5.5 were going out. Um, nobody was doing AJAX. Most applications were going to be pretty limited, you know, doing form validation and, and rollovers and stuff like that. And you tended not to be on any page for very long. So, yeah, we're going to accumulate garbage, but we'll fix it the next time we, we transition away or something like that. Um, it was only when AJAX happened that all of those assumptions no longer hold. We've really changed the way we use the browser in this the past few years. It used to be that they, they were very transitory windows. Now I see folks who open a browser window, go to an app, and they're there all day. Uh, yeah, uh, quite right. So it's a, it's a miracle that it works at all. <laughs> the, brow- the browsers were not, to des- not designed to do this stuff, and they weren't tested for doing this stuff. They did enough right that we're able to do this stuff, which is amazing. So there's a couple of uh, graphics of Bob on your pages. Are you an Illuminatus Trilogy reader? Uh, that's not Bob. That's not Bob? No. Do you know who I'm talking about, though? Uh, yeah. Well, for one thing, he doesn't have a pipe. Oh, that's right. Bob had a pipe. <laughs> but it's very close. <laughs> it's just another guy. All right. Just another guy. Uh, look at facelesscorp.com, Faithless Corporation, uh-huh. Richard, and our listeners. Um all right, I'm intrigued. I haven't touched any of these buttons yet. What is this? Uh, that's a placeholder for my next company. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Very funny. So also in your bio, uh, you mentioned that you developed a secure language. What is that? 
and and why? Um, okay. So the biggest problem we have with the browser is that the security model doesn't fit the applications that we're trying to write now. Um, the, the browser actually has a much better security model than the desktop has. Um, um, so in the desktop, the operating system can't distinguish between the interests of the program and the interests of the user running the program. So if a program can get itself installed, it gets access to everything the user's got access to and probably more. And so that's why it's not safe to download applications off the net indiscriminately and, and install them and run them because it's just too dangerous. But you can do that on the web. You can go to a site you've never been to before that's got a program that gets loaded into your browser and it can run and you don't have to explicitly install it or approve it or authorize it or any of that stuff because it, the browser understands that what it wants to do isn't necessarily what you want to do. So the browser is looking out for you and trying to protect you in, in some ways. The place where the model breaks down is that the browser doesn't anticipate that there might be more than one interest represented by the programs. So um, if there is script from two sources, say, on a page, um, the browser assumes that they both get exactly the same privileges. And that, that's fine in the case where the site authorized all of the script, but if script gets on the page unintentionally, which is what's now called a, an XSS attack, that script gets to run with all of the privileges of the, of the site, including the ability to send messages to the site, which the site cannot distinguish from its own messages, or the ability to present anything they want to the user, and the user is unable to determine that it didn't come from the site. So um, that's a problem. We've had that problem since Netscape 2. Um, but a bigger problem is that... Um, in the last few years, we've discovered mashups. And mashups are the intentional combining of scripts from uh, different interests and having them work cooperatively together, cooperation under mutual suspicion. And that's going to enable a lot of really amazing applications. But we can't do that now because there is no way for those components to defend themselves from each other. Um, and that's the big security problem that we're, we're facing. So um, I've been working for the last few years on the design of a secure language, which is very similar to JavaScript in its, in its scope, but which applies a capability discipline so that it could be used for making safe mashup components. And many of the things I've learned in, in doing that work have been factored into um, AdSafe, which is a platform I'm doing for um, making advertising safer. Much of that has informed um, the design of Kaha, which is being developed at Google, which does a similar thing in trying to apply capability discipline to the JavaScript language. So um, there is a secure language hidden inside of JavaScript. You just need to take out all of the features of the language which are insecure. Um, and that's basically what Kaha is doing. Um, and uh, some work that we're doing now at ECMA is trying to formalize this. So we're looking at what is the smallest modification we can make to the design of JavaScript, which yields a safe language. Um, and if we can reach consensus on that, then that language may ultimately um, 
replace JavaScript in browser applications. Aren't we coming up to a, a major version of JavaScript in general? Like there's a new ECMA standard coming? There is, there is a new standard. Uh, it will, it's being uh, finalized now. It will probably be approved by ECMA sometime this year um, and will probably start showing up in browsers earlier than that. Um, some of the features are already in browsers now. Um, and uh, that language, I think, is a significant improvement over um, uh, the previous edition. Um, but it's still very short of being the secure language that we need. And it's, I think they're calling it JavaScript like 2, right? Uh, no, it's not that different. Um, there was a proposal in 2000 for a language that was called JavaScript 2, and the oh, okay. proposal was abandoned. It was reawakened a few years ago uh, as ES4. That proposal has also been abandoned. Um, so the next edition is uh, going to be based on uh, a less ambitious proposal that was called ES3.1. Um, and that provides some uh, ability to harden objects in, in the language so that um, uh, objects can be created that can't be compromised. So uh, that's something which will make or allow Kaha to operate more quickly and more reliably. But it, it doesn't make it into a secure language yet. That's interesting because I, th I think that uh, a lot of folks feel pretty safe about browser stuff because of the browser sandbox. I know we found a few expo exploits, but for the most part, uh, considering the internet, we've done pretty well to protecting people. Uh, we absolutely have, and that's why the browser is a much more credible application delivery system, I think, from the desktop. Um, so the browser's got that right, and the desktop still hasn't caught up with that. Um, but um, it didn't get enough right. So um, we still have cross-site scripting attacks and cross-site request forgeries. Those are uh, those need to be eliminated. Um, right now, it, the burden is on the web developer to not expose himself to that, but that that's too difficult. It, it's very difficult for developers to defend themselves from these inherent weaknesses in the platform. So we need to fix the platform. Can I shift gears here a little bit? Because there's so much stuff on your blog that I'm really interested in. And one of them was a post you did on, on DRM. Um, what are your thoughts about it? I mean, obviously, it, is it over yet? Uh, there are still companies out there that are hanging on to uh, digital rights management. Is it over yet? And what do you think, what do you think um, the future looks like in terms of um, uh, artists getting paid for their work? Uh, DRM isn't over yet. Um, the uh, music industry and the film industry are still hanging on. Um, but uh, eventually they are going to have to cave on it because it, it just doesn't work. It's not going to do the things that they wanted it to do. Um, and I think the um, cost to humanity for DRM is just too high. Um, so how stuff gets paid for is going to have to change. Basically, what um, the DRM in um, in DVDs, for example, was mainly there to protect uh, windows of opportunity, or um, that a, a movie or a property may be released in several different 
venues at different times. So, you know, initially it might get a domestic release in theaters and then an international release in theaters and then um, uh, on ATV and then on discs and, and so on. And each of those comes out at a different time, but each creates demand for the next product. In particular, the uh, theater release creates demand for the DVD. And while they had the DVD and they could have shipped it at any time, um, they wanted to hold it till later in order to maximize the amount of money that they could make in the theater. Um, so the pirates were then incented to try to get the release out earlier. Um, and DRM was supposed to prevent that, but didn't because the technology simply doesn't work. Um, and, um, and, you know, so since it, it doesn't work, um, and, it, and it is so onerous to uh, the people who end up buying it, um, uh, it eventually it's going to have to go away. Yeah, in uh, as an as an artist myself, who is not, I'm not, you know, I'm not um, trying to become the next rock star or anything, but uh, you know, I'm I'm clearly aware of this problem. And uh, on the one hand, you know, it's great that people download stuff that they get exposed to it, but on the other hand, you you know, uh, I, I talk to somebody who says, hey, the new such-and-such such album came out. I'm a huge fan. I'm going to download it. And I say, well, if you're such a fan, why don't you buy it so that you can support your band so they'll have enough money to make the next album? I mean, it just doesn't make sense for for people. Right, and and I think what you're, you're saying is exactly the way it needs to work. We need to change the social contract. Um, you know, that there... Is a benefit in getting the stuff out for free. I mean, if you remember back to AM radio, um, how there was payola, where the record companies were paying money to get people to play their stuff for free, because only by having people hear it can you get people to want to buy it. Um, so um, since then, they've changed their attitude where they want to get paid for every listen, uh, which is just not realistic. Ultimately, the way musicians have been paid historically was by performing. Uh, and it, it was only in the 20th century where that changed, where you could make more money by not performing. And I think we're actually going to step back to the earlier time. It does seem like it's going that way now, where you're seeing uh, the record company signing major artists, and I'm thinking Madonna in particular, where the package of her signing was as much performing as it was albums. And really like there was no intention to make money on albums, but to make money on the performances. Yeah. I think we're going to see a, a big shift that way. Well, and it makes sense to me that, that that would be the way it worked. You get as many people listed as possible. And then when you go out to perform live, everybody wants to go. So ultimately what we're going to lose in the new system are the superstars. We may not see superstars anymore, you know, and you can kind of see that now in that, there isn't any music that everybody listens to or that most people listen to. It's right. become so fragmented that um, nothing's going to get that big. But the ability for um, for talented people to make money performing may actually improve as a consequence of that. They're just not going to get super rich anymore. Which is not necessarily a bad thing either because it seems to destroy people as well as you know making them wealthy. Yeah. I mean, do we really need to subsidize the next Michael Jackson? And, and all that comes from that. I'd like my money back for the first one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
and it and actually you know where it's like we're getting further down that long tail that more and more people can find more and more of the diversity of music that they like mhm yeah so. and you know so in in my generation everybody grew up listening to the same top 40 hits um and that was good in that we all recall the same songs and we can communicate with that that's not so true anymore um, no um and considering that most of what was on the top 40 was crap, I think maybe that's a good thing. <laughs> the, I, I think that's certainly a part of it. There's also this element of just being able to listen to other things. I also wonder if this whole process isn't diminishing the role of the label in general. Oh, absolutely. And that's what it's really about, is that um, uh, when we used to talk about disintermediation, um, getting rid of the middleman. And that's a middleman that we don't need anymore. We don't need a music industry anymore. Yeah, I think that's what's happening. And a lot of what what was motivating DRM was that industry trying to find a reason for it to continue to exist. The biggest problem I see for for artists who have talent is they they have to spend their I mean they're spending their own money. There isn't a, an investor anymore. There isn't somebody who says you're, you've got talent, you just need a, a, a boost. And somebody could to come along and sort of promote them and get them gigs and things like that. Because essentially, if you're really good at what you do, that means you spend 24 hours a day doing it. You know, and you're not out there, uh, you know, your focus isn't on making all sorts of money so that you can promote yourself. It's on doing what you do. So I think it's more and more difficult for that to happen. Then, of course... You got a friend with a video camera. You put something on YouTube, and great things can happen. So, well, yeah. So the wonderful thing is that anybody can now record their own stuff. I mean, it used to be you needed a lot of money to get into a studio. Sure. Um, now you can own your own studio, and it's really cheap. Okay, come on. I take a little really, I, really good. I take a little exception to that. You can buy cheap equipment and get something good out of it, but you got to know how to freaking use it. Just because it's cheap doesn't mean that you're going to be able to use it right and make something that sounds good. Oh, absolutely. So I think in order to be successful, you're going to have to know what you're doing. Or know um, somebody who knows what they're doing, yeah. yeah I, I don't think there's any question of the value of good engineering still. Granted, we're all biased here. But uh, it, it's the promotion engine is you know subject to debate. And this actual game of, of the release control, the, the, the label control. Right, and, and and that is a proper role for the music industry to transition to, is providing services to artists. Right. That's an interesting point, that the, yeah, the artists seem to be the second banana for a long time in the 20th century. Right, I, the, I think that shifts now. It is about the talent, after all. Right. Well, there's so much we could continue talking about, but our time has unfortunately run out. Is there anything that you want to um, publicize or... Or a shout-out to before we sign off? Uh, yeah. Um, Bill Scott has a book that just came out, Designing Web Interfaces, Principles and Patterns for Rich Interactions. Great book. Go get it. So that's uh, in the the RIA space that seems to be the right way to build apps these days? It's the web. <laughs> it is the web. All right. Thanks. Doug Crockford has been our guest. Douglas, thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Of the website is crockford.com. Go check it out, and we'll see you next time. Dot and rock.
Dotnet Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band